hotel It's gonna be a great Noel It's the Advent Calendar House Muffins, black and smurfs And even Garfield's Halloween We're gonna take a trip down memory Welcome to the Advent Calendar House, the holiday podcast that left you to seek its fortune, but now it's back and it's grown a sexy mustache. (laughs) It'll all make sense. Or will it? Only way to find out is to set the dial on your haunted time-traveling radio back to 1979 and join us as we find Henry Winkler under multiple layers of makeup in an American Christmas Carol. I am allegedly too dumb to see a stick for anything more than just a stick, Mike Westfall. And look who I found burning the midnight oil, and thanks to an unattended cigar, my entire livelihood, it's Tommy Coombs. Hey, Tom. My factory, how will I survive this? (laughs) (laughs) And a friendly ghost who broke in and redecorated my basement so he could hold choir practice. Please welcome Scott from Holly Jolly Xmasu. Hi, Scott. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Going great. Thank you both for being here. This was a new one to me. I I knew about it, but it was my first time watching for this recording. So I want to hear about when y'all discovered this. And we will start with Scott. Uh, I discovered it on December 16th of 1979. Really? You watched it live? Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, it, it was 79. Everybody was a big fan of the Fonz. Oh, yeah. And... We, I had been looking forward to this for the longest time because, um, I, I mean, they promoted the heck out of it. And I'll be honest, the first time I watched it as a seven-year-old, I was so disappointed because all you got was old man Fonz right. for the first, like, 35 minutes. And uh, it, it wasn't until, like, the following year when, when one of the uh, local channels started running it each year that I, I gained a much bigger appreciation for it. Okay. Tommy, how about you? Um, when I was a kid, I remember seeing this. My uncle, he actually looked like Henry Winkler. And so we would always say that's what he would look like when he was older. Would be the Henry Winkler wearing the, uh, Henry Winkler wearing the you know, crappy Miracle Max makeup. <laughs> so I forgot about it, like with uh, Halloween that almost wasn't. But then a few years back... Um, hats off entertainment i want to say did a review of this and the memories just came back of it okay yeah yeah no like i said this was the first time i watched it uh but i want to add it to my regular rotation this really stuck with me yeah this wasn't bad i really enjoyed this well see and we we had one one of the local stations around here up until 85 86 they would run it each year and they were the same station who ran the um uh jeff goldblum sleepy hollow movie oh uh, wow every october so you know up until mid 80s i got to watch each of those every single year okay i think though i think the writing has a lot to do with it this was written by jerome coopersmith who also wrote the rankin bass special twas the night before christmas oh, oh wow and it was directed by Eric Till, whom I know mostly as a Jim Henson guy. He uh, he directed The Christmas Toy and a bunch of episodes oh, wow. of Fraggle Rock, including the series finale. And he co-directed A Muppet Family Christmas, apparently, but he's not credited. But I saw that somewhere, I think, on IMDb. I don't even think Muppet Wiki has that listed, but take that part with a grain of salt. But all the Fraggle Rock stuff and The Christmas Toy, that's legit. Christmas Toy was another one that I uh, forgot about and, and remembered years later. Oh, I have watched that every year for the last, like, 35 years. See, and I, I never saw Christmas Toy until six, seven years ago. Oh, wow, I, I somehow okay. I, I missed that completely when it came out. Okay. I remember Nickelodeon used to have every Saturday afternoon, like, you know, special Muppet Hour and whatnot. Yeah. And that's where I saw the Christmas Toy. Mm-hmm. And that's when I saw the... Maybe it was the Cinderella where she could talk backwards or was that Cinderella? No, that was the Frog Prince where she's talking oh, backwards. With Ted that Miller. was 
Yeah, Tan Hamanella. Yeah, that that was I believe that was the introduction of Robin. Yes. But that one, I think that's where I first watched Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Oh, I see that. That's another one we watched the first night it came out. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had an aunt and uncle. They had HBO. Oh, and, there it is. Uh, that that's another one. They 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 were promoting it. They're like, you've got to come over. It, it's the Muppets. It's a new Christmas special. And um, yeah, that's we've watched it at least once a year since then. Mm-hmm. But for this one, Henry Winkler said. He sought out this role of Benedict Slade, a Scrooge-like businessman in Depression-era New Hampshire, because he had become so successful as the Fonz, and he was so afraid of being typecast to the point where he turned down the role of Danny Zuko in Greece. That was probably for the best, I want to say. Yeah, he, I heard him say that he regretted it a little bit, but he wasn't sorry either. I think it was actually on the commentary of... The, of this DVD, when this got put out on DVD, they did a whole behind the scenes thing on it and they interviewed everyone who was still around. Yeah. Well, and I think he, he repeated that recently. Okay. Uh, just cause it's one of those trivia bits that, you know, started popping up on social media again. Sure. But he's almost unrecognizable as the Slade character for the first, oh, good 20, 30 minutes of this. Like you said. Mm hmm. He said it took five hours to apply it all and about one hour to get it all off. Sure. The makeup was done by Rick Baker, who would later win the first ever Oscar for best makeup in 1981 for an American werewolf in London. Oh, see, I, I was shocked. I, I read that earlier today and I had never I, I didn't realize Rick Baker had a part of it. Yeah, no, uh, his makeup work is also, you've seen it in everything from Star Wars to the Thriller video to Ron Howard's Grinch movie. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, seeing as it's Halloween time right now that we're recording this, they got to bring up Thriller. Got to bring up Thriller. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. First off, if you want to watch this yourself, it is free to watch on YouTube, courtesy of Shout Factory TV, as well as a few other places online. It's commercial free on certain YouTube channels. Yeah, I saw a few commercial free ones. We have the DVD. I also paid for the streaming copy of this, so I, I can watch it on my phone anytime I feel like it. There you go. But we only see a tiny glimpse of Benedict Slade through a window as we open on a snowy street on Christmas Eve, 1933, as we're told by a caption, and a group of boys going around caroling and collecting for the local orphanage. This is when we also meet our Bob Cratchit stand-in, Thatcher. He's played by R.H. Thompson. Been almost two weeks. Yes, yes, I know. I promised to speak to him, and I will. No, I will. But the moment has to be right, or... If he even knew I was talking with you now. You two don't know this, but I just talked about him in the last episode I recorded. It was a Disney Channel Hanukkah movie called Full Court Miracle, and he was the rabbi in that. Really? Yes. Uh, and are you familiar with Anne with an E on Netflix? No. No, it's an Anne of Green Gables uh, remake, and he's Mr. Cuthbert in that. Oh. Yeah, my, my daughters have not checked that one out, but I, I've heard very good things about it. It was really good. Here, Thatcher is talking to a group of men who are obviously out of work and gathered around a hot stove. Thatcher has apparently promised these men he would speak to his boss about getting them work, and you could probably guess how that's going to go. But as he does, Thatcher stops and gives the caroling orphan boys some change, and the oldest one of the group asks if Mr. Slade happens to be in. And Thatcher tries to explain he's very busy this time of year, but we hear Slade call from inside his office to let them in. If you send him a letter, I I'm sure he'd... Ridiculous, Thatcher. Of course I want to see the orphanage kids let them in. And he even gives them gifts of little pamphlets he had printed out on how to succeed in business or whatever it's called. You can do it. You ever go trick-or-treating and one house gives you a little comic book about accepting Jesus in your heart? <laughs> this is a version of that. That, that was a house with the eggs in our neighborhood. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that we did it. We just. No, but <laughs> we, we'd see it each year. Right. I had one. I remember I received one. It was a Jack Chick one, which those were the worst. Those were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was these boys went into a haunted house and they ran out and one got hit by a car. It went to hell. 
because he was a bad boy. <laughs> I think it's not too late for you this Halloween night. Like, dang. And I was in a youth group then, so that, that scared me even more. Yeah, no, Jack Chick did not pull punches. But Slate honestly thinks he means well and is helping teach these kids something. But after that, he tells his assistant, Thatcher, they have some visits to make. And off they go in their Model T T-truck. <laughs> if you've ever seen the Model T, imagine that with a truck bed. And that's what we've got as they make their first stop at a farm just outside of town that is home to one of Slade's debtors, a Matt Reeves played by Dorian Harewood. Don't beg him, Jenny. He has come to do what the law allows. Nothing we can say or stop him. He's a hometown boy. He comes from Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Another reason why I love this movie. All right. I know him. I remember seeing ads for the Jesse Owens story. He was Jesse Owens in that. Mm -hmm. Um. But I also know him more as a voice actor, particularly on a Saturday morning cartoon called Pro Stars. He was the voice um, of Michael Jordan. Really? <laughs> yes. I remember Pro Stars. Him, Gretzky, and Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, yeah. Uh, Dorian Harewood, coincidentally, was also a voice in Space Jam. He was the Larry Johnson monster. Oh, also voiced War Machine in the 90s in the Iron Man cartoon. And if you've ever watched an episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where Shredder sounds weird because James Avery wasn't available, that was Dorian Harewood. Really? Yeah, there were a few. There were like a handful where, I don't know, they couldn't get James Avery for whatever reason, but they needed to get these episodes recorded, so he stepped in. <sighs> Why won't this dimensional portal generator work? I need fuel and materials from Dimension X. So here we also meet Mr. Reeves' wife, Jenny, played by Arlene Duncan. If we could have one more extension, Mr. Slate, just a couple of months, I think we can make the payments. You think you could? Internet tells me she's a Canadian actress and singer who's best known from a CBC sitcom called Little Mosque on the Prairie. She's a diner owner in that named Fatima. But this is one of her earliest TV roles. And she asks Slade for an extension on their payment to him, but her husband stops her. Tells her Mr. Slade is there to do what the law allows and there's nothing they can say that'll stop him. And what the law allows is repossessing everything of any value in their home, including their stove, a rocking chair, and a radio that'll come up later. Mm-hmm. See, and I, I like how the uh, Slade's assistant just goes in and grabs the stove on the coldest day of the year with no protection and carries it to the truck. Right. <laughs> Not Thatcher. He has another guy driving the truck who's grabbing the stove. Thatcher is very reluctant to take anything this whole time. But for now, we move on to the orphanage run by a Mr. Jessup. And it's Gerard Parks, Doc from Fraggle Rock. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid our situation hasn't changed very much. Well, I'm very sorry to hear that, Jessup. You shouldn't have gotten in over your head. But we needed a piano after 42 years. The old one fell apart. We had no choice. Neither do I. Tommy, I think this is how this movie first came up on my radar. We remembered Doc was in it. Yeah. it was, And he he sort of looks like Doc, but not really. Yeah, it's a few years before Fraggle Rock started. I wonder if the Eric Till connection is how he got the role as, as Doc. It might be. Yeah. Oh, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But he's not wearing his glasses in this. That's why. Yeah, because I totally forgot it was him in this. Oh, once he started talking, that's that that was the end of it for me. <laughs> Here he's Mr. Jessup, but before we meet him, we notice Slade take a very nostalgic look around the place, including at his own name carved into a desk. We learn he spent a year there as a child, but he clearly has no love for that place because he's come to repossess their piano. And on we move to a university bookshop run by a Mr. Maryvale, played by David Wayne. Oh, not that one, sir. Please. Above all, not that one. Why not? Well, it's an original edition of Mr. Charles Dickens. It was given me by my father, who got it from his grandfather, who was a friend of Mr. Dickens. It must be protected. Who is best known to me from the movie How to Marry a Millionaire as the millionaire Marilyn Monroe marries. Say that three times fast. So the title character. Yeah, uh, he was also Digger Barnes on Dallas. And in the 1960s Batman, he was the Mad Hatter. That's where I know him from. 
Oh, is that it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, he, this guy looks familiar, but I can't couldn't place him. Okay. Because not to be confused with um, what was it the bookkeeper? No, no, I'm thinking of bookworm and bookkeeper. Okay. Who was played by Robin Dell. And he's keeping a book in this, so okay, yeah. yeah crazy. Yeah. Well, see, and one thing I like in these in the scenes where he's repossessing everything is if you listen to the uh, the the music in the background, it's a like a dirge like playing of "We Wish You a Merry Christmas." Yes, it's we it's <laughs> it's the merriest Christmas song imaginable, and it's just slow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we sure do. We wish you a Merry Christmas. I'm taking all your books. <laughs> All the leather bindings of several books, including a first edition copy of A Christmas Carol that's a family heirloom, or was, but Slade takes that as well. Okay, so the fact that that exists in this universe, um, I got to bring something up. Okay. There was a religious film a few years back called The Imitation or something like that. Have, did you guys hear of it? Mm-mm. I don't know what you're talking about. Also, let me look up the title of it. But the thing was... Um, sort of like an Elvis story where these a lady gave birth to twins and they were poor, so they couldn't keep both of them. So they put up one for adoption, and the one that they kept became a big music star like Elvis, and the other one became like an imi- like an imitator of him. <laughs> and then, like, so while you're watching your, the movie, you're like, okay, this is supposed to be like an Elvis type st- story in a universe where Elvis never existed. And later, like his agents yelling at him, he's like, listen to me. He's like, there's only one Beatles. There's only one Elvis. There's only one Drexel the Dream. So in this <laughs> universe, there's an Elvis and an Elvis-like imitator and an imitator <laughs> of that imitator. <laughs> That's a lot of layers. <laughs> By the way, that movie was called The Identical. The Identical. Well, all right. That's in the show notes for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we see Slade make a few more quick stops, but those three were the important ones. Also, this whole time, we notice Thatcher is very troubled by his role in this business. Slade notices it, too. Every time Thatcher sadly hands over a written repossession order to one of our victims, Slade watches him like a hawk. And so we finally arrive at Slade's warehouse. As he begins to rip apart more leather-bound books, he asks Thatcher to help him. And he takes this as his last chance to ask about those men who have been out of work. It turns out they worked at a quarry that has since closed, and they were hoping Slade could reopen it. But he has no interest in reopening a business that's failed. And when Thatcher tries to make a case for them, Slade accuses him of trying to squeeze money out of him. I don't need to learn business from you. I learned it from the best, Jack Latham. The smartest businessman this state ever knew. Until now. Do you know what he said to me on his deathbed? He said, Ben, never throw good money after bad. And never pay a man one penny more than he's worth. And that's the note on which he fires Thatcher. Ooh. I've run into a few adaptations of A Christmas Carol where Scrooge fires Bob Cratchit. Normally, I'm not a fan of that change, but here I think they make it work. Yeah, this is one. It it, it fit the uh, it it fit the story in this one. Yeah, when it's you know when it's actual Christmas Carol adaptations, they they don't need to do that. No, they don't. Well, we follow the now unemployed Thatcher home, and he puts on a cheery demeanor for his family. Mrs. Thatcher is played by Linda Gorenson. Oh, I'm glad you're home. You okay? Yep. Christmas tree all decorated. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia says her most noted performance was in a 1970 episode of an anthology series called The Manipulators, which won her a Canadian Film Award. It was also the first topless scene ever broadcast on Canadian network television. Oh. She and Mr. Thatcher have two children, Sarah, played by Tammy Bourne. I lost my job today. Is that all? We thought it was something worse. That you killed somebody with an axe and were going to be hung. Whom I brought up on this podcast before. She was the voice of one of the kids in The Raccoons. Oh, wow. 
And I mentioned she was also in the movie Prom Night and falls out a window to her death. Ooh. <laughs> uh, but this role is her earliest on IMDb. The Raccoon series is her last. So very small child actor window there. Ooh. And Jonathan Thatcher, our tiny Tim figure, is played by Chris Crabb. He was also on a show I remember on the Disney Channel called Danger Bay. It's about a Marine vet and Chris Crabb played his son. He's still acting and is also a tennis coach to the stars, apparently, including George Clooney, Kevin Klein, and Robert Downey Jr. Really? That's what his IMDb says. I don't know how much he had it written, but I want to call something out here. Thatcher's nickname for his son is Mr. T. Where's my Mr. T? Here's my Sarah. Just take off the lights. Now, who would this be underneath my coat? Who is underneath my coat? It's Jonathan Thatcher! Yeah. T for Thatcher. But several websites that reviewed this movie called out that nickname like, I pity the fool. This movie came out in 1979. Nobody knew Mr. T yet. No. He, he was still a bouncer at the time. Yeah. Yeah. This was three years before Rocky Three. Mm-hmm. It's just a retroactive coincidence. It's T for Thatcher. But the warm welcome home doesn't last long. Mr. Thatcher tells his wife they need to talk in private, and the looks on the kids' faces tell us they know it can't mean anything good. Meanwhile, we cut back to Slade's place. He continues ripping the bindings off of books and gets to that prized first edition of A Christmas Carol, stops and decides to flip through it, landing on the random line, Darkness is cheap, and he liked it. This slate isn't quite as cheap. He's got electric lamps running, but he continues reading the spooky part where Jacob Marley's ghost enters and then rips the binding off that as well. And as he does, we hear a clap of thunder that shuts off the power. He tries to call the electric company, but the phone lines down. So Slade lights a candle and that's where we hear the eerie sound of someone whispering his name followed by the rattling of chains and other noises. So Slate thinks someone's broken in and reaches for his rifle, (laughs) only to find his old dead partner, Jack Latham, sitting in a chair under his own portrait with an otherworldly echo to his voice. Oh, come on, Ben. You wouldn't shoot your old partner, would you? Latham is played by Ken Pogue, IMDb says he's best known from a Canadian show from the mid-80s called Adderley about a secret agent for an organization run by his character. He looked familiar to me, and he had a large body of work, but I don't think I've seen him in anything else. He was apparently additional voices in the Star Wars cartoon droids, but that's all I got. Well, see, and I, I got to say, I do like what they do with Latham in this scene. Um so some of the Christmas Carol adaptations and the not so Christmas Carol adaptations, um, they they don't handle the uh, the the Marley stand in that well. But I I I, I do like uh, I, I like Latham here. Yeah, uh, I like how he's like you know human and not like you know either got an R around him or has like just white makeup on his face. Right, he doesn't look like he's his his rotting corpse. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't look very ghost-like at all. He he looks, the ghostly part of him is in his voice, which I like. Um, yeah. And I think that makes it a little more disturbing, because other than that, he looks very comfortable. There's not a chain visible on him. He's got a business suit and a hat on. Looks quite comfortable for a tormented spirit, but he doesn't mince words. He confirms he's come from hell. Hell is not what you think it is. Fire, sulfur, devils with pitchforks, none of that. Thank God. It's worse. It's living in all your past all the time. Forever. He says it's too late to do anything once you're in the ground, but Jack tells Slade he can still make changes and he's here to help. Slade is going to get three more visitations, as Latham puts it, but not so much ghosts as, well, he words it, conductors on the Boston main line and Slade had better go where they take him. And then he disappears, snuffing out Slade's candle. And a few seconds later, the power comes back on and Slade dismisses his meeting as a slight touch of indigestion. I'm glad they kept that part in there. <laughs> they do hit some of the uh, 
some of the marks pretty well. I mean, it they as different as as it is from a, from a Christmas Carol, the uh, a lot of the basics are still in there. Yeah, it's uh, it's very parallel. Mm-hmm. Slate says to himself, "It's too quiet in here. That's the problem." So he goes into his bedroom, turns on the radio he repossessed from the Reeves farm. But the radio suddenly goes into a breaking news bulletin about a stock market crash. We are standing by for a statement from President Hoover. He will speak to the nation on the state of the American economy. Slate turns the dial and it's a report on the Lindbergh flight of 1927, followed by even older music. So he just turns off the radio, but the sound of the jazz trumpet continues. Coming from downstairs where we find... Mr. Merivale from the University Bookshop? Nice instrument. I played a trumpet in a war a long time ago. You should have seen those walls come down. Hmm. Also, um, if I may add, had he not said anything about the strangeness of the uh, radio transmissions, I probably would not have picked up that it wasn't the same time uh, period. Okay. Well, I remember seeing 1933 at the beginning and then talking... About Hoover and uh, well, Thatcher had also said now that FDR's in charge, he's got his new deal. He's getting his new deal together. Ah, uh. and then they have this broadcast about the Lindbergh flight of twenty-seven. So it's in there, but yeah, you you had to have noticed those other things before that. Oh yeah. But who we think is Mister Maryvale? It looks like him, but it's our ghost of Christmas past. He puts down the trumpet, picks up a paintbrush and glue, and starts to repair the Christmas Carol book. But Slate tells him to get out, outside. The ghost says, all right, and poofs them both outside to that quarry that's been closed. Just to be a jokester. What are you doing? What's going on here? Had enough? Yes, I've had enough. Thank you very much. Get me back inside. Brings them back in, and Slate finally asks, what do you want? And his visitor replies, The past wants only to be remembered, and we fade back to the old orphanage where the now-dead headmistress brings in a Mr. Brewster to meet the children. He wants to take one as an apprentice in his shop. I don't think you'd be advised to take that boy. Excuse me, Mrs. Tidings. I'd much rather do something for someone who needs rather than someone who just wants Mr. Brewster is played by Chris Wiggins, best known to me as the voice of No Heart from the Care Bears. (laughs) I've talked about him before, actually. He was in the special A Cosmic Christmas as the eccentric mayor who kept shouting at everyone to keep calm. (laughs) But he is much more soft spoken here as Mr. Brewster, a kindly business owner who spots a young Benedict Slade alone in the back of the room. I'm trying to offer you an opportunity, young man. Well, you can give it to someone else. Played by Sammy Snyders, who around this time played Tom Sawyer on a show called Huckleberry Finn and His Friends. Was also the main kid in the 1981 horror movie The Pit. Okay. Yeah, I know that one. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, He is currently a dance teacher in Toronto. Ooh, good for him. So the young Slate is sulking by himself, trying not to be seen, actually struggles when being taken by the arm to meet this guy who says he wants to do something for a child who truly needs rather than someone who just wants. Uh oh. <laughs> like all those orphans who, uh, <laughs> the selfish, greedy orphans. Yeah, right. The ones who are <laughs> right. How dare you line up here wanting a better life? So Mr. Brewster brings young Slade back to his workshop. He owns a woodworking business that makes handcrafted chairs and other items. I saw the body of a guitar hanging from the shelf. Young Slade does not want to be there, and Brewster says that's up to him. But then he picks up a small stick of wood and asks what he sees. He only sees a stick, but Brewster starts whittling it down and says it's anything he wants it to be. It could be a magician's wand or the handle of a lion tamer's whip. Or flute. This reminded me of a couple of bits I remember seeing on Sesame Street that did the same thing with a stick. Robin Williams was in one. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was like, oh, it's a baseball bat. Oh, that's a cigar. (laughs) I do not have relations with that woman. Oh, what are you saying? (laughs) He he skipped that one. (laughs) He skipped that one with Elmo. (laughs) 
Then Brewster hands the boy another stick and says this can be whatever you want unless you're too dumb to see anything but a stick. Interesting strategy. Here, kid, carve this unless you're stupid. What would you carve with it? A slightly smaller stick? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it works. And the young Slate starts carving and we flash forward to him watching a full factory of woodworkers and learning the trade. All the while catching the eye of Brewster's young daughter, Helen. And then we flash forward to her and a now young adult Slade riding bikes together in a park on a date. There's the Henry Winkler we know. Now, uh, judging by how this is going, I'm going to assume that's a teenage Slade. Or like early 20s, but I don't know. Oh, yeah. It could be. I mean, how old was Fonzie supposed to be? I just assumed like, you know, 22. I think it was kind of fluid. Yeah. Helen Brewster is played by Susan Hogan. Do you like nature, Ben? Yeah. Would you like to get really close to it? I mean, really close. Would you? Yeah. Good! (laughs) Oh, wow! The internet tells me her most noted role is a 1991 Canadian film called Border Town Cafe. I have seen her in the Disney movie White Fang. Okay. Yeah. And she had a minor recurring role in Battlestar Galactica. But looking through her IMDb, it looks like she's also in a lot of Hallmark movies, including A Very Merry Mix-Up and The Christmas Secret. Hmm. So we see a bit of their courtship as we cut to a Fezziwig-style Christmas party, where Brewster gives out some gifts, including one addressed to the Brewster family and all their employees, the future. And it is a chair made by a company in Michigan... Slade's behind this prank. He thought the Christmas party was the right time to explain to his boss that chair was made on an assembly line and they could sell a lot more of those for a lot less. But to Brewster and some other workers' point, it's not made as well. There's a lot less care put into this quickly assembled chair than one of their own. So they all laugh at him and Brewster kindly tells him he cares more about quality than quantity. Both have good points, But have you ever gotten a handcrafted, hand-me-down piece of furniture that was maybe decades old and instantly think, this is the best quality whatever it is that I've ever had? Yes. Yeah, I I still have my parents' chair from, uh, I think it was a wedding gift to to them, so it was from like 69. Wow. And it has held up better than any other chair we've had. We just got a hand-me-down bed for my oldest daughter, and it looks like maybe 20 years old and in pristine condition, better than any bed we have ever gotten for her. For us, it was last year for a toy box. My mom gave us this chest, which turned out to be the chest that my great, great grandparents uh, brought over when they immigrated to America. Wow. But Slade's embarrassed and walks out of the party. Helen goes after him and he tells her he doesn't want to see her father's company get passed by. So she tells him, come to dinner that night and explain it again. So he does, and he apologizes for the stunt. But here is where Slade announces to the whole Brewster family, he's been offered a job at that other company who made the crappy assembly line chair, and he intends to take it, which means moving to Michigan and starting at the bottom. So he tells Helen he can't take her with him, but he'll call for her when he's ready to live together the way he wants to live, lavishly. This is very similar to the original Christmas Carol story, too. At least some versions of it with Belle. Yes, I picked that up also because I was like, this seems insane, but different. Some versions of it. Like in the original book, we don't meet Belle until the breakup scene. Yeah. They don't meet at Fezziwig's party. That's something someone added at some point and others thought, hey, that's a great idea and ran with it. But we keep going. We flash forward to another Christmas Eve party at the Brewsters. This one is some kind of war bond fundraiser during World War One. So the decorations are all red, white and blue. I, I was thinking about that today. Slade must have lived one rough life to have aged that much in 19 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. This is supposed to be 19 years between this past and now. <laughs> I mean, he, he he looks like a 30-year-old Fonzie in this party. And then right. <laughs> 19 years later, he looks like he's about 80. Yeah. 
Here we see Brewster chatting it up with Jack Latham and in walks an older but still young looking Ben Slade now with a big old mustache. <laughs> big old obviously fake mustache. Yeah, well, <laughs> it looked like you remember the the Frosty the Snowman cartoon where they're walking through town and the barbershop actually clips off one of this guy's big giant mustache. <laughs> That's what that reminded me of. Big mustache, big fat wad of cash to reach the Brewster's fundraising goal of $25,000. Both Helen and her father recognize Slade immediately behind that mustache and just stare. So it's been a while since they've seen him. And that means he's just now coming to call, like he said. They make small talk and Mr. Brewster says hello. He mentions his health has been getting worse. And Slade tells him, you know, there's a new way of selling so you can take it easy and still stay in business. He's talking about time payments and charging a boatload of interest. (laughs) Brewster politely excuses himself. He's not interested, but Jack Latham is and gives him his card. And the old Slade who's watching this whole scene, remember, is proud of himself, says, Yep, that's me. I always moved in when the moment was good. I could always smell a good business deal. So could Latham. Look where he ended up. Ooh. (laughs) Well, Slade drives Helen back home to her father's place where they notice a light in the factory. No one's supposed to be working that late on Christmas Eve. But inside they find one of Brewster's most loyal employees, Sam Perkins, burning the midnight oil, putting some furniture together. What are you doing so late here on a Christmas Eve? Eh, just catching up on a bit of work. Does my father know you're here? No, oh, he'd never allow it. But has to be done now that half our people are gone. They say hello, and he takes the cigar out of his mouth and leaves it on the table, which starts a fire after Slade and Helen leave. So we cut to firefighters trying to put it out, but it's too late. Not for Sam, he's okay, but we never see him again. But the factory is burning down and a total loss. The old Slade has seen enough now, but the ghost makes him watch as we cut to sometime after Christmas. And Mr. Brewster sees his friend Jack Latham with a battle loan to rebuild eventually. The younger mustachioed Slade is there as well to see Latham about his time payment idea. Latham is very interested, but says he can't finance both that and Brewster. And here is where Slade stabs the man who took him in in the back. Well, and was Latham really that good a businessman if he couldn't have two deals going at one time? That's a good point. (laughs) That's a very good point. But Slade tells Latham, Mr. Brewster is a wonderful man and I owe him a lot. But he's been doing the same thing for 40 years. He won't even look at a new idea. And I sincerely believe that he wasn't doing that well before his loss. Told me he was climbing back. Not to overstep my bounds, but if it were my money to invest, and I had the choice between a rigid old and the innovative new, there would be no contest. And then we cut to Brewster's funeral. We saw him clutching his heart both at the fire and walking out of Latham's office and were left to believe Latham turned down his loan and that killed him. But the younger Slade tries to approach Helen at the funeral, but she just walks away without a word. The older Slade tries to talk to her and say it wasn't his decision to turn down the load. I didn't kill your father, but of course she can't hear or see him. And that is when the old Slade wakes up in his bed with a start muttering, I didn't kill your father. I didn't tell it. There's lots of folks you shouldn't forget. When giving McDonald's gift certificates. The paper boy who delivers through thick and thin. The lady who teaches your son violin. The barber who cuts your hair just right. The sitter who sat for you Saturday night. Say Merry Christmas with McDonald's gift certificate. Each costs 50 cents. A book of 10 costs $5. Nobody can do Hi, this is Scott from Holly Jolly Xmasu, your podcast destination for Japanese Christmas music. If you like Christmas music and are tired of the same old songs, this is the podcast for you. 
Join me each month as I explore my collection of Yuletide albums from Japan, featuring everything from city pop to 80s rock, long-lost jazz, and psychedelic garage rock. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. It's some of the greatest Christmas music you've never heard. past is past and it's time to move on to christmas present we hear a children's choir kind of eerily singing silent night off in the distance and that's a tiny bit creepy but i'm over here thinking now nah, you can make it sound creepier <laughs> yeah it was uh very unsettling well after the night he's been having it probably sounds terrifying <laughs> But he goes down to the warehouse to see who's singing, and it's the kids from the orphanage now singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, along with our ghost of Christmas present figure taking the form of Mr. Jessup. Come in, Mr. Slade, come in. I think that's what made me first want to cover this. I wanted to see Doc from Fraggle Rock as the ghost of Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> And he's so good. He's so cheerful, but he's got a dry wit about him. Yes. This is an underrated Christmas present right here. Well, and I, th I think a lot of kids who grew up with Fraggle Rock would appreciate if you grew up a little bit later than I did and you, you know, you're a big Fraggle Rock fan. Mm -hmm. You'll like this more because of Doc than because of Fonzie. Yeah, probably. not. Yeah, I'm in that sweet spot where where Happy Days was still on, but Fraggle Rock was just getting started. Mm -hmm. So the whole warehouse is decorated now with tinsel and white garland and Slate is furious. One kid's playing the piano, which Slate says is rightfully his by court order. <laughs> so the ghost says, OK, got any requests? Yes, Slate answers his privacy. <laughs> This just makes the kids sing more loudly, so he tells them all he's going to close his eyes for 15 seconds, after which they'd all better be gone. And I'm thinking 15 seconds, that is awfully generous. Mm -hmm. It's like when a parent starts counting one, which, Tom, you're a new father. That doesn't work. No, not yet. Give <laughs> you the one, <laughs> two. Don't even bother. <laughs> No, we don't see the whole thing. We we cut to the end. And by the time he opens his eyes, the singing stops. And the ghosts, the orphans, and all the decorations are gone like they were never there. So he dismisses that as his imagination sits down to take a breath and on a whim decides to open the piano back up and plays the notes of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And as he plays that, we hear the faint whispering of children singing along. And that might be the creepiest thing in this whole special. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, there were some very unsettling parts in here. But I also like that that is like the very first hint of his face turn. Just like, I'm going to sit down and tinkle the piano to God rest ye merry gentlemen now that everybody's gone. Goes back up to his bedroom and oh, ho, the kids are there singing now. <laughs> so Slate asks the ghost who looks like Jessup, what do you want? And he says, only to share this beautiful holiday with you as someone else might have done. And he points to across the room to a door to a completely different building. It's a well-decorated living room with a little girl there opening her presents. And Slade realizes pretty quickly it's Helen's daughter. This is an interesting scene because it is taken from the original Dickens story, but we rarely see it included. Are you all familiar with this original bit? Yeah, I actually am not. So... It was originally the last scene of Christmas past and Scrooge is taken directly from breaking up with Belle to see her with a bunch of babies, very happy. And her husband tells her, hey, I saw your old pal, Mr. Scrooge today alone in his office, even while his partner's on his deathbed. And that's the scene in the original story where Scrooge finally snaps and says, take me back, haunt me no longer. Oh, huh. I don't recall that. 
Well, and I don't know why they cut that out of so many of the adaptations. I don't know. I think they want to they all want to linger on like the the loss of love bit as opposed to look at how happy I am now. Mm-hmm. I know in some versions, Belle isn't even included at all. I've seen a few of those and I don't like it when they just cut her out completely. Yeah. Well, and h- him seeing her with her family, it it just makes the sense of loss that much more intense. Yeah. Especially when husband strolls in and says, hey, I saw your old friend Scrooge alone by himself. Mm-hmm. Alone in the world, I believe. He he didn't just miss out on her. He missed out on her and the family and oh, yeah. everything. Well, and Slade says it here. Mm-hmm. I could have had a child like that. If only things were different. And the ghost lingers on that word, if, and tells him... What's more important are the paths we choose now. And he takes Slade over to the Thatcher residence, the home of his now former employee. Slade insists Thatcher deserved to be fired, saying he disagreed with everything Slade did. Who needs a man like that around? And the ghost replies, three people in here do, and he takes him inside to meet the Thatchers. The kids can tell something's wrong now, but their parents don't want to tell them what happened, not on Christmas. But when they say, please don't make us guess, their dad tells them the truth. He lost his job. And the kids reply, oh, is that all? We thought you killed somebody with an axe and we're going to be hung for it. That's your first thought? Oh, what a relief. <laughs> we thought you might be a murderer. <laughs> that, that was a little grim. Jeez, Dad, we thought, you, we thought you were the BTK, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Depression was tough, y'all. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher mutters, there's someone I'd like to kill with an axe, which is way harsher than I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon. Even Miss Piggy wasn't that bad. No. (laughs) She just put up her dukes. (laughs) Dad tries to lighten the mood, tells his kids he'll get a new job eventually, and jokes he's considering an offer to become Grandmaster of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, and hoists his son in the air and marches around the room. Thatcher's a man after my own heart. I can't stand seeing my wife or kids upset, so I always resort to being a goofball if they'll allow it. Oh. They have to be game for it, though. It doesn't work if they're not, so I will wait. But the older sister, Sarah, now suddenly starts crying, asking, if you don't get a job, will we starve to death? Which sounds extreme to us, a bunch of people 90 years in the future with computers recording a podcast. But during the Depression, this was a legit fear. Yeah. So it's Jonathan's turn to lighten the mood, challenging his sister to a game of Chinese checkers, which I only learned recently, that game was invented in Germany. (laughs) It's flagrant false advertising. (laughs) It's neither Chinese nor checkers. Discuss. No. So Jonathan reaches for his crutches to go play with Sarah, and their mom softly asks her husband, I guess that means his trip to Australia is out of the question now. They were hoping to take him to a clinic there run by Sister Kenny, who was a real person who treated polio patients. Oh. Yeah, they they made a movie, I think, with Rosalind Russell starring as her. That sounds right. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I... Went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole. It's just like, tell me more about Sister Kenny. Mm-hmm. So their doctors told the Thatchers their best hope of helping Jonathan was going to Australia. And now that seems out of the question. Even when Mrs. Thatcher suggests selling the house or furniture, no one's buying houses during a depression. And here, of course, is where Slate asks if the boy will live. And the ghost of Christmas present asks... If that's important to Slade, and he says, of course it is. There's another small glimpse of that face turn. Mm-hmm. But the ghost tells him he sees an empty chair by next Christmas, and Slade slowly walks over to Thatcher, who of course can't see or hear him, but he talks anyway, says he had no idea he was dealing with this. And we end Christmas present there with a fade to commercial. I just did. When we return, Slade's back in bed with the radio on again, but now it's playing strange noises that we recognize as rock and or roll. (laughs) Followed by a news broadcast about the discovery of a polio vaccine, and then followed by disco. (laughs) It's a nightmare. (laughs) 
I tried to like get the lyrics of whatever song they were playing and see if I could retrace them, but I, I had no luck. So I don't know what this song is. You know, it would be great if it was that song from the Halloween that almost wasn't. Oh, <laughs> Keep on thinking. <laughs> Slade tries to mess with the tuner, but it doesn't work. Dumb old box, you never replaced the Victrola, that's for sure. And who will replace you, Mr. Slade? And in a shadowy corner, we find the ghost of Christmas yet to come, taking the form of Reeves the farmer, but dressed in 70s fashion with his shirt halfway unbuttoned at a big old collar. <laughs> it's the sexiest ghost of Christmas future ever. It's the anti-John Travolta. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going with that. I'm just trying to think. The only one I could know, I'm just like, I saw one that was like a, a, a woman playing her. And then it was like, oh, no, that was Mallory on Family Ties. <laughs> but... Slade thinks it's Reeves at first and quickly realizes he's dressed in modern, no future fashion and recognizes who his visitor really is. But the ghost doesn't think Slade really believes it. But Slade insists he does now after all he's been through so far. And the ghost repeats Slade's own words from when he was younger. The future is coming whether you like it or not. I like that they did it here. In the original story, it's Christmas Present's job to throw Scrooge's words back into his face. But if we're going to have a Christmas future speak, this is a good way to do that. Mm -hmm. So we cut to Slade's warehouse, where there's a public auction selling all this stuff he's repossessed through the years for a lot less than it's worth. We see a mahogany dresser full of his clothes and, oh, very nice money clip that we saw in the past, sold for 10 whole cents. And Slade is offended, but he doesn't seem to realize it's his stuff or he's very deep in denial. Especially when we find out most of the stuff auctioned off is joyfully burned in a bonfire. Where one final item is sold for $100, it's a portrait of Slade that goes immediately on top of the bonfire pile. And everyone chants, burn, burn! That's me! What are you doing? What are you, crazy? I can imagine being like him looking right at it and be like, who do they speak of? Right. <laughs> well, every, every version of A Christmas Carol, it's so, so obvious to us. And Scrooge is just so deeply in denial that it's just like, oh, I see. This case could be like mine. Like, nah, dude. I'm glad Ebenezer Scrooge is dead. Are they talking about the Ebenezer Scrooge from Two Towns Over? I get his Slade screams at the ghost to get him out of there, and he asks where to. He says, any place where there's peace and quiet, as you wish, and we arrive at the cemetery. Doesn't get quieter than dead. <laughs> well, first we see Jonathan Thatcher's headstone that says he died in 1935, so he did live to see one more Christmas. But his family's there to visit him a year since his passing. The ghost tells Slade very matter-of-factly, that shouldn't surprise you. Life is cause and effect, and you were certainly no stranger to the cause. Slate argues, we're the future. That hasn't happened yet. It's not real. But the ghost tells him the grief of those people is real. That doesn't jive with the point Slate was trying to make now that he insists he can't be blamed for something he didn't even know. Thatcher never told him he had a sick child, he says. Ghost isn't thinking fourth dimensionally. <laughs> In the middle of all this, Thatcher from the future tells his daughter, Sarah, We know there's going to be other partings among us. A marriage, long voyages, even death again. But when someone is remembered with love, their spirit never really dies. So instead of looking for someone to blame, let's promise to always remember Jonathan. And off they go, and amid Slade's insistence that this future can still be changed, the ghost tells him it's not for him to say, and they too had better go. But Slade's attention turns now to another headstone in the corner that seems fairly new, but already very overgrown, unkept, and forgotten. Oh, whose could it possibly be? Tell me that this can change. I don't want to lie here and... In a grave, unremembered and unloved forever. He now says he's willing to make a change, and you know the rest. 
We begin to fade to commercial, though. I don't like it when TV versions do that at this exact part. Yeah, I know what you mean. That definitely interrupts the flow. Yeah, like, what did I watch in July? The Flintstones, they did this same thing, and I think the sudden shift from begging for mercy at his own grave to suddenly finding himself back on his own bed loses something when you cut to commercial in between. Like, cut right before the graveyard, or right as you get there, even. But we actually still have 15 minutes left of this. There's a lot that happens Christmas morning in this version. Yeah, I remember checking the uh, time and being like, there's still 15 minutes left. Well, there are, there's a lot of loose ends that we have to tie up now that we've introduced all of these people who have doubled as ghosts. So Slade awakens to the sound of church bells, opens his window, asks a couple of boys on the street what day it is, and they giggle, don't you know it's Christmas? He's so happy, and we get a happy version of We Wish You a Merry Christmas now, as he realizes there's still time. It's Christmas. It's still time. It's still time. That's the only one they paid for. (laughs) (laughs) So out he goes in his truck straight for the Thatcher's house. Honks the horn and bangs on the door, tells him they've got work to do, but Thatcher reminds him, I'm not your employee anymore. Slate tells him, don't tell me who you are. I know more about you than you could possibly dream. Now go out to the truck and get what I've got for you. Okay. And he turns his attention to Mrs. Thatcher and says they've got business to discuss too. What's for dinner? A five-pound chicken? Nope, and he slams a big old raw turkey on their table. I hope he washed his hands. Yeah, I don't think they had bacterial wipes back then. No. I hope you guys aren't hungry. This is going to take about eight hours. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Mr. Thatcher brings in a big bag of presents for the whole family, except it seems at first for Jonathan. But psych, it was in Slade's pocket. He's very playful about all this. I like Henry Winkler's reformed Scrooge character. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's not the, you know, over the top goofy portrayal you get from you know some other scrooges i think he uh he he goes just far enough mm-hmm. yeah like and you can still tell that he's having a good time like he's having good fun and this all amuses him but he doesn't mm-hmm. get overly silly like a lot of them like i think like even alistair sim just like kind of let it all loose mhm His gift for Jonathan is a series of tickets, one for a bus to Boston, and one for a train to Chicago, and then to San Francisco, and then one for a ship to Sydney, where he can go to that clinic. Oh. And Mrs. Thatcher is at a loss for words, and she gives Slate a big old kiss, but he says, nope, that's enough of that. You've got a bird to cook, which gives her husband time to get to work with him. In the truck, Slade says, I suppose you expect to be paid for today. And Thatcher at first says, oh, no. And Slade replies, well, you should. You must start thinking like an executive, Thatcher. Vice president in charge of new projects is nothing to sneeze at. You? Projects? Yes, I was thinking of opening up the granite quarry down at Pentecost Hills. Bring a few hundred jobs into this town. And that's just the beginning. So, of course, they now go around town returning everything. Their first stop is the Reeves farm, where he jokingly tells Mr. Reeves, be careful of that radio. It's acting very peculiar. (laughs) It plays demon music. (laughs) (laughs) They move on to the bookshop where he tells Mr. Merivale a bookbinder will be there to restore everything he tore apart, including that first edition of A Christmas Carol. Did you read that book, Mr. Slade? Did I read that book? The uh, Ghosts of Hell, the... Spirit of Christmas past, present, and future. Absolute, unadulterated. What was the word he used? Humbug. That was a dumb but cute gag to fit that in. Well done. <laughs> yeah, Slade saying it, I I wouldn't have bought it. No, I'm glad that like they didn't hype up that part, but I'm glad they snuck it in there right at the end. Mm-hmm. Last stop is the orphanage where a bunch of the kids ride on top of the piano as they noisily sing their way back inside. And here is where we get, I thought, a really clever way to wrap up this particular version of the story. Slade notices one orphan boy by himself in the back corner of the room, much like we saw the younger version of himself. Yeah, It's a good good, uh, use of parallelism. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I also um there's the scene of Slade leaning up against the wall talking to the kid. I didn't see Slade there. I definitely saw Henry Winkler there, like being all cool with him. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, just like <laughs> the young Slade, this boy refuses to go meet this guy. So Slade walks back there himself, and this line. Now you listen to me, my fine friend. You've been invited to go for a ride, and I'm bigger than you are. So here are your choices. You can either leave with me smiling, or I'll pull you out of here, kicking and screaming, which will not make a good impression on your friends. Which is cute because we know Slade's intentions, but without that knowledge, that's a terrifying conversation for this kid. <laughs> so yeah, it works. We then cut to the charred remains of the Brewster Furniture Company. Slade intends to rebuild it, bringing on this kid as an apprentice, and we have a very similar conversation as Mr. Brewster's to his younger self, where he shows him a stick even gives them a gift-wrapped pocket knife and they start whittling. It's a very sweet full circle we end on because this is the end of the movie. Is that really a towel bar? Well, it will be. It doesn't look like a towel bar. Well, give me a chance, boy. Give me a chance. Yeah. I like the ending, even though I felt the uh, part with the new kid went on a little too long. But I, I thought it was a good ending. It did kind of drag a bit, but I, I like the idea of it. Yeah. Any final thoughts on an American Christmas Carol? Um, like most of the stuff that uh, we watch and review for this, a lot of it's cheesy. A lot of it's corny. This seemed very sincere. I really enjoyed this. This seemed like it wasn't really like a product of the times. Even I would watch this every year. I liked it. It, it was a good. Henry Winkler gave a great performance, and I think it's worth having a uh, Grease without Fonzie in it. <laughs> well, and I, it has the feel of a lot of other TV movies from the time, um, which isn't a bad thing. No, um, it, it's when I'm watching it, it's something that adds to the nostalgia just because, you know, it, it feels like a lot of the stuff that I watched back then, but. Yeah, it's it's one I just I just love. I mean, everybody was a huge Fonzie fan back then. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it you know, there's that. Uh Dorian Harewood, I, I love seeing him in it. Um I I do have a good Dorian Harewood story. Oh, okay. Um when my 13-year-old was born, we get into the operating room. Uh it was a C-section. The nurses are all standing around and they're talking to the one nurse all these other nurses are like shaking. They're so excited because her uncle was going to be in town and they keep talking. Well, are we going to get to meet him? Can we meet him? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. She goes, I have to see. I have to see. And at the last second, right before they start the operation, the doctor says, hey, nurse Harewood and calls her over. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get a chance to talk to her because uh. <laughs> I was going to tell her, if you see your uncle, tell him this guy who had a kid today loves him as the ghost of Christmas future. Oh, man, that would have been. Oh, I'm sure he would have loved that. Yeah, because it, it, it we I, I ended up with the Nick in the Nicky with my daughter and I never yeah. saw the nurse again. So. Oh, nuts. But that that's the closest I've come to uh, Dorian Harewood here in town. Well, all right. Also, I want to add that uh, when he gives the one present to the uh, bookkeeper, it looks like a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> he got that from Christmas Future. They went, they skipped a whole bunch, <laughs> skipped a whole bunch. It's like, hey, what's this? It's like, I don't know. All I have was a DVD player and a DVD of something called Fletch Lives. <laughs> <laughs> So I came into this kind of hesitant. I didn't know what to expect, but it really kept me interested throughout this whole thing because it was a completely new story. Mm -hmm. But I like that enough of it was familiar that I could follow along, but still be surprised at some of the choices they made with this. But definitely worth checking out if you are a Christmas Carol fan and discovering different versions of it. This is quite charming, and I'm happy it holds up and is beloved by the people who remember it. But thank you both for joining me on this wild ride. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed revisiting this and talking about it again. 
Well, if people want to send you a gift-wrapped omen of your future in the form of a cheaply assembled chair, where can they find you on the internet, Scott? Uh, well, I'm the host of Holly Jolly Xmasu, a podcast all about Japanese Christmas music. Uh, you can find me on most of the major podcast outlets. Um, I've got some great stuff coming up in December. Um, just some really wild out there albums that you're you're not going to hear anyplace else. So if you get a chance, check it out. It's a very fun show. Thank you. And Tommy. Um, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, both at the Pop Daddy, and I'm on YouTube.com slash Pop Daddy Tom, and on Instagram at the underscore Pop Daddy. I just realized YouTube.com slash Pop Daddy Tom rhymes. Yeah, I didn't intend for that. <laughs> no, but you have to milk that now. Oh yeah. <laughs> Please check out all of their stuff, y'all. You're in, you're in for a good time. You can find those links in our show notes, and you can find this show at adventcalendar.house. You can find wherever I'm hanging out at linktree.com slash adventcalendarhouse. Thank you again for listening. Next episode, we get even spookier, so join us if you dare. Till then, for Scott and Tom, from my haunted warehouse full of other people's most prized possessions, this is Mike Westfall reminding you to always be mindful of the icy patch. And God bless us, everyone. Good night. Next time on the Advent Calendar House. Hello, kiddies. Just your old pal, the Crypt Keeper, having a little holiday fun. Why else would I be in this getup? Unless there was a clause in my contract.